transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Night has fallen on the Mojave and everything is shaking. Did you feel that? You better check the recent earthquakes on the shake map. Make sure that wasn't just your imagination. Everyone's starting to walk around like they just got off a boat. You know, lurching around. Grabbing onto a choya for stability. We did have a couple of monster earthquakes here in the Mojave. Maybe you felt them. Maybe you heard about them later. To our friends and listeners up in Ridgecrest and Trona, I hope your nerves aren't driving you batty right about now. There's really nothing you can do about earthquakes. They're going to happen or not, and they aren't going to ask for your permission. Luckily, there's not a lot of damage that can be done to a one-story, 300-square-foot cabin on five acres. Just ride it out. We'll just ride it out together. Now, an interesting thing happened a few days before the first big quake, the 6.9. And it's enough to make you wonder. An ancient petroglyph, the sunburst petroglyph, was stolen. Stolen out of a canyon outside of Ridgecrest in one of those dense concentrations of ancient petroglyphs around Ridgecrest and on the China Lake Naval Weapons Station. You're supposed to say aboard China Lake, I believe. And that's because if you're in the Navy, then literally any structure or location anywhere is considered a boat. So when you see Navy personnel boarding a regular Southwest jetliner, they always say something to the pilot, like, nice boat you've got here in the water. Just part of the Navy culture. sunburst petroglyph with its triangular pattern of three brilliant lights well you can guess what I think about because it looks just like you're looking up at the underside of one of those big black triangles always zooming over the desert after hovering in place about a hundred feet above the ground with the spotlight looking around for something. Maybe it's looking for you. I mean, it happens. That is not in dispute. And the person or organization behind this theft of a 500 or 600 pound ancient boulder with this ancient rock art 
They must have gone in with a team of mercenaries or commandos or droids or whatever and maybe a helicopter. And off they go to deliver the prize to some supervillain's lair. Maybe one of those vulgar high-rise apartment buildings above the Las Vegas Strip. And then the earthquake started. And the whole desert around Ridgecrest and China Lake has been shaking and rocking ever since. I think we had better find that sunburst petroglyph and put it back. Right back where it belongs. We've got Brendan Mays on the line, and Brendan, I have started to worry about you. I have not seen you around town lately. How are you doing, and what have you been up to? Well, Ken, I haven't been around town lately. I've been out pursuing uh, many of my multiple ventures, as you know. Mojave Miracle Holdings is the umbrella group that runs a myriad of industries that we have. One of them, of course, is uh, disaster relief. We have a very good relationship with FEMA and with the Army Corps of Engineers and with a bunch of other government agencies providing relief uh, for people who are in dire need of help or assistance from the government. I've been out in the Searles Valley working around Ridgecrest, dealing with the fallout from these multiple earthquakes we've been having. Been spending a lot of time out there, helping the community, getting block grants going, getting money coming in, getting money going out, making sure the people are receiving all the assistance that the government can provide. Can you tell me what you're doing and who is benefiting from it? Well, I'd like to think that everybody benefits from the work that we do at Mojave Mirage uh, Industries. We have uh, multiple services that we provide. As you know, Ken, we do uh, package fulfillment services for a lot of large online retailers. Right, but but Brendan, could you tell us what you're doing up in the earthquake zone? And as uh, certainly frightening as the earthquake was, it seems like most of the damage has already been at least assessed and is on its way to repair. Yeah, well, it turns out that a lot of the communities, uh, Ridgecrest in particular, but surrounding communities were all built uh, pretty recently. And so the earthquake codes kept a lot of those buildings from getting as damaged as we want. we thought that they would be. And so some of the money that we thought we were going to spend didn't actually need to be spent. So we're trying to look at what we're going to do with this uh, surplus government funding. We're not exactly sure where it's going to go yet. We have some ideas. So you're holding on to some disaster relief funds that are intended for the people of Trona and Ridgecrest. Is that correct? Holding on to it, is, yes, I guess you could say that we're holding on to it. We plan on reinvesting it and seeing if we can make that pile of money grow uh, to a greater degree and see if we can't reinvest that money into the community in some way. Now, when you were up investigating the damage caused by these double earthquakes, can you tell us some of the damage that you saw? I guess I could. I 
not be doesn't seem like there's a lot of damage out there. Uh, some of the mobile home parks, uh, the mobile homes were knocked off their foundations, and of course, by foundations, I just mean house jacks and wheels. They're not really houses. Uh, some roads were cracked up. We had some issues with broken gas lines. We had a broken water main outside of Searles. The down power lines on the west side of the valley, which is not our jurisdiction, so we had nothing to do with that. But it seems that most of the damage occurred actually at the Naval Air Weapons Station at China Lake. That seems to be where most of the damage has occurred. Now, this is interesting because a number of listeners have forwarded to me, I believe from your Facebook group, this flyer that has been posted around Trona and Ridgecrest. And it does have your phone number and one of your company names here. And it seems to be implying that the earthquake was caused by some sort of secret project going on at China Lake and that your company is looking to represent people who suffered damages. Am I reading this correctly? Yes, Ken. I believe you're referring to a flyer that was put out by one of our top sales guys, Tom McClintock. And he kind of released that flyer and put it up without vetting it with us or the government first. So uh, I'd kind of like to walk that flyer back. If a flyer could walk, I'd like to walk it right back to Mojave Mirage Industries and kind of put that thing under wraps. Uh, word has gotten out. Some information has kind of escaped the grid that had gotten out there into the environment that probably should have been kept a little bit more under wraps. And we're trying to walk this back and talk this back and see if we can't... Uh, well, but before, before we do, uh, before we walk this back, we should at least point out that this is your company. This is your picture of... of you, and that's your office here in Joshua Tree. It says that underground laser weapon testings oh boy. caused these catastrophic earthquakes. I don't know why I would say something crazy like that. I don't know where you're getting these fires from. You know, I have a lot of enemies out here. Unfortunately, when you uh, when you do good work, when you reach to the top, there's a lot of a lot of crabs in that barrel that try to grab you with their pinchers and just drag you back down to the bottom of the barrel. So there's a lot of misinformation out there, Ken. And I'm just telling you that I don't think we really had anything to do with these flyers. I don't know who's putting them up. And I don't know why I would say anything about our program, or I'm sorry, the government's program, to destabilize the tectonic plates with lasers or with nuclear devices or or fracking or, hell, even water extraction. I, I don't know why anybody would be letting that stuff out there. It's kind of a misinformation campaign, Ken. Seems like some sort of of doxing campaign. You know, a lot of people have published my personal information. They published uh, my my Facebook page, my home address, various rental properties I have all around the country, and uh, my, my, my bank accounts. This is some sort of concerted effort to make me appear to be uh, a real bad guy. Somebody's up to no good, and, and that's not what we're about at, at Mojave Mirage Industries. Can you know that? Well, do, do you feel like perhaps your public statements that you've made as, as an individual, not necessarily representing your company, about your belief in some of these sort of subterranean projects is adding to this idea that you actually do believe in this? I have gone on record, so to speak, 
podcast speaking of the environmental uh, liabilities that are associated with certain things, certain projects, certain industries that we're involved with. You know, we're a responsible company, uh, equal opportunity employer. You know, we uh, promote women to high ranks in our company. I, that one of our divisions is... But Mojave Mirage is a contractor at China Lake NWS. Uh, no, Ken, that's, that's correct. Were you on base when the earthquake struck, either the first or the second? I don't see how that has anything to do with this flyer or my industries or my work with the with the federal government or I'm with the just, Department I'm of just curious if you were there and you could tell us what it was like. Well, Ken, I guess it would be fair to say that I was in the area. And whether or not I was actually on the air weapons station... Uh, this is a matter of conjecture or something that I really can't address. But, yes, I was in the area, and it was it was quite a shock. Well, you know how earthquakes are, Ken. There's a big bang. There's a bunch of shaking. Stuff falls over. goes on for a little while. You think, gosh, do I run outside and get hit by all the falling glass? Do I, do I tuck and cover? Do I get into a doorway? What do I do here? So we all basically just sat still in the conference room. Some guys jumped under the desk. It's kind of funny to see a... It's kind of funny to see a general all dressed up and is, you know, going down on their hands and knees, climbing at the table. We'll see gold braid flapping, epaulets getting stuck on the little divider in between the table, hats knocked off, and we had a good laugh about it. It was actually kind of funny. They were looking at each other under the table, waiting for this thing to pass, and we're thinking, boy, how many, how many kilotons was this one, you know? Because, you know, they work with weapons out there, Ken. They blow a lot of stuff up. We wouldn't think it would be man-made weapons that triggered the earthquake because we're, well, not we. I'm not privy to this stuff, but they know what weapons they've got and when they fire them off. These things just don't, well, I guess they do go off by accident every now and then. And so that maybe was a concern that maybe perhaps one of their, uh, what they call them, they call them their babies or their children might have had a little temper tantrum uh, out of class, so to speak, but we didn't necessarily think that that was the problem. I don't know how much of a secret it is or isn't, but it's pretty well known. You can look it up on the internet that uh, the Department of Defense runs some pretty top secret weapons programs out there at the Naval Air Weapons uh, Station at China Lake. It's That's no secret. And so we do know that we've been working with lasers and thermonuclear devices and uh, other high-energy particle physics to develop new weapon systems. So none of this stuff's exactly top secret. I mean, the stuff that goes on out there obviously is top secret, but it's not. It's not like this is very cutting-edge technology, Ken. So, of course, it's top secret. And, of course, you can't talk about any specifics. But in general, everybody knows that at the Department of Defense or Navy or Air Force a research facility that you're going to be working on top secret stuff. And a lot of that stuff's going to be weapons. And, of course, we've seen the movies. We've seen, we've read the novels. We know it's going to have something to do with lasers. It's going to have something to do with with particle physics. It's going to have something to do with particle accelerators. It's going to have something to do with things that go boom. I spend most of my time I'm spending indoors. I'm not necessarily a stargazer. I don't go out and look at the big, broad, beautiful vistas. I do when I'm driving around or flying around. I see this stuff, and it's impressive to me, but I don't have my eyes trained to the sky. 
I've got more of my ear to the ground. And so this earthquake phenomenon uh, is great interest to me. As you know, we've been having problems with Iran. And uh, as you know, Iran is affected by heavy earthquakes, heavy earthquake activity. They've had numerous earthquakes. So we're looking at the vulnerabilities that Iran has and how maybe we can bring them to bear with this nuclear enrichment stuff and try to get them to the table. Well, one of the ways you could probably uh, destabilize Iran or at least shake them up a little bit is to literally shake them up. Perhaps the government has been working on a secret program to destabilize tectonic faults and earthquake faults. Perhaps maybe something that that's something they're doing out there, whether it be by lasers or whether it be by a subterranean nuclear detonation. It is something that the government has been considering. The Panamint and Garlock faults are, have nothing to do have nothing to do with the San Andreas fault. They're limited to the to the north of the valley. They're not going to have any sort of effect. I hear that people in LA, this was a 7.1 earthquake. People in LA barely felt. They felt a little bit of swaying and jolt. It's not going to affect the major metropolitan areas or areas where there's uh, large population centers. So it might be a little bit safer to be doing this kind of work out there in the middle of nowhere than fooling around with the San Andreas Fault or the Rogers Fault or the Hayward Fault. It might be much better to do this kind of stuff out there if they're doing it. I'm not even saying they're doing it. But if, if you were going to do it anywhere, wouldn't you want to do it in the middle of the desert? A half a century ago, despite all of our many problems, a couple of humans left Earth and landed on our moon for the very first time. Left low Earth orbit and landed on another astronomical body, our closest neighbor. Our closest neighbor of the sort and still very far away. July 1969, thanks to the efforts of thousands of people working all over America, thanks to anti-communist hysteria, and thanks to that rocket technology that we took back to Texas in the form of Nazi rocket scientist Werner von Braun, Two lucky ducks got to walk on the moon, and as Americans like to do, the astronauts immediately put up an American flag. We did it, mostly for the wrong reasons. But that is how exploration usually works. Somebody with lots of money wants more money. Somebody with no money wants some money. Somebody wants global domination. And next thing you know, there are newly discovered continents and elements and planets and galaxies. You know, both of my parents worked on this first moonshot in Houston. And my mother was kind enough to type up her recollections of what it was like. So here's an email from my mom. She says, here's some stuff about your 
dads and my time at NASA Houston Clear Lake City. Most of the people who worked at the Manned Spacecraft Center in Clear Lake, Texas, near Houston, were from other places. Many of the employees, especially department heads, were former military. A lot of those people thought they were still in the military, and they acted accordingly. Working at NASA was exciting, meeting interesting people from all over the United States, and being a part of this mission was especially exciting. Your dad worked in the clean room where they supposedly had instruments that could weigh the grease from one's fingerprint. He worked there the entire time we were in Houston. He had to wear what they called a bunny suit, and all the people who worked in there had to go into an airlock area before getting into the actual clean room. No one could go in unless they worked there, and only after suiting up and going through the airlock chamber. I don't know a lot of what they did in there, but I know that they used chemicals and tested assorted things. I remember that your dad brought home Ziploc bags of all sizes, which were barely defective. They were being thrown out, so he took some out of the trash bin and brought them home. There was nothing like this in stores at this time. All of the women in our neighborhood wanted them. I gave a few away and kept the rest. He said that there were three American flags packed into these larger bags after being put through a special solution and dried. These flags went to the moon with the astronauts. Your dad packed one of them and two of his co-workers each packed one. So we always said that maybe the one your dad packed is the flag that's on the moon. I worked for the manager of the logistics department. He was a very nice man who had been stationed in Greenland near the North Pole while in the army. When I applied for the job, I was interviewed by six men, most of them except the manager, seemed more interested in my appearance than necessary skills. I was 22 years old at the time. The logistics department consisted of three sections. The shipping and receiving department where everything from rocket engines to pencil erasers came in and were sent out to other NASA facilities. And there was a cataloging department where obviously everything was cataloged and the reproduction department which reproduced whatever was needed on the huge Xerox machines. This was where the first photos of the astronauts on the moon came in at our facility the Monday morning after the actual landing. Those photos went out to newspapers and television all over the world. My first assignment was to finalize the credentials of our department's many employees. I was amazed that these people were hired without completed paperwork. Most of the forms were not complete. I had to sit with these people one at a time to get information regarding their background, former addresses, relatives, neighbors, etc. It was like pulling teeth. Everyone was required to have, at minimum, a secret clearance. Many of the employees had top-secret clearances. 
There was a fake moon near my office where I could look out almost any time and see astronauts suited up and walking on the surface of a very large round wooden area covered with gravel, rocks, boulders. It tilted all sorts of ways while these guys were walking on it. There were several different groups of astronauts doing this on a regular basis because NASA needed backups. This part of Texas was very hot and humid during spring and summer, and I could only imagine how hot it must have been in their suits. It was exciting to see this going on, but after seeing it so often, most of us eventually just thought, oh, there go those astronauts again. When Virgil Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chaffee were killed in the NASA Cape Kennedy incident, everyone at the Houston facility and likely everywhere else, we were all shocked. This was a great loss and a very personal loss to everybody at NASA. Besides the tremendous sadness we all felt, we were also very concerned that the whole moon mission would be discontinued at least or shut down completely. But the mission went forward. Lessons learned from that great tragedy on January 27, 1967, made future missions safer. One day, while leaving the Houston facility, your dad and I were at the security exit lane and looked across the entry, and there was Lyndon B. Johnson, President of the United States, sitting in the back of a large black limo with his two beagles, him and her. The dogs were running from window to window. The windows were down, while LBJ chatted briefly with the entry guard. That was the closest I've ever been to a president of the United States. I waved to him, and he waved back. There was a very popular small butcher shop about six miles from where we lived, and every Saturday there was a long line of customers. This was Paul's Market, which sold the best beef in town. Since it took so long to get served, the women in line would chat with whomever was in front of them. One day while there, I was talking to a nice lady. She was next in line and took out her checkbook, and I noticed her check read, Frank or Sue Borman. I was talking to an astronaut's wife. When Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landed on the moon, July 16, 1969, the world watched. You were almost four years old, and we kept you awake to see this marvelous event. It was near midnight in Kima, Texas, and everyone in our subdivision went outside, and they were blowing their car horns and shouting. It was a huge celebration. From Amboy to Zizek's and across the great Mojave wilderness, this has been Desert Oracle Radio, and I am your host, Ken Lane. We broadcast from KCDZ-FM and Joshua Tree and on fine community radio stations on the West Coast via public radio exchange. Soundscapes on tonight's program by Joshua Tree's own Red, Blue, Black, Silver. 
get our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Thank you for listening and good night from the Voice of the Desert.